Well, good morning. Uh, would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 13? Uh, it's Hebrews 13. It's near the end of your Bible. Uh, if you need to use a table of contents in the front, there's one there. There's no shame in that. Um, we are in part three of our kind of three-part discussion called Regroup, which is where we're talking about kind of the three words, the three pillars of where we want to be at, as Hillside. We want to be a people who uh, connect deeply, grow fully, and serve passionately. And so this is week three, so we're talking about serving passionately. And particularly, we've been uh, really thinking through the theme of hospitality as a church. Um, as the leadership, and we wanted to talk about that through the lens of serving and our serve passionately value. So uh, we're going to kind of camp in one verse, but this is a theme through all of Scripture. But as we turn to Scripture to see what God says to us about this, um, I'd love to read it together. Um, if you're able, if you're willing, would you stand with me as we read from Hebrews 13? Um, we're just reading the first three verses together. So the author says in this letter, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. So Spirit of the living God, who dwells in our hearts, who raised Christ from the dead, who inspired the writing of this word, would you teach us what it means? Lord, as your people, would you form us into people who look like you and act like you, and that the world would actually taste some of who you are because of the flavor of this church. Um, so whatever you need to do to our hearts, to my heart this morning, um, Lord, would you accomplish that? May we hear your voice and be touched by your presence. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I didn't even tell you who I was. I just told you to turn your Bible. So thank you for doing that. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. And yeah, that's why I'm here. So <laughs> uh, I was curious. I'm, I'm wondering if it ever feels to you, because it kind of does to me, if the space that you feel like you're able to inhabit just keeps getting smaller and smaller. Because it feels like every day that there's a new issue, uh, a new cancelable offense, and that is not a shot in any particular ideology. There is as much canceling going on on the political right as the political left. I mean, even the fact that we have the terms right and left to determine ideologies is an act of narrowing, of closing a circle, of creating even less space at the table. So there's a question of, are you a this person or a that person? Or maybe the real question behind that is, are you with me or are you against me? In fact, maybe more precisely, do you support who I am or do you reject who I am? That's only one of those options, always. Do you get the sinking feeling that there may be that there are fewer and fewer people who truly would want you in their space? I mean, of course, they'd say they would because we're polite West Coast Canadians, which means we keep maybe our sour judgments hidden. But I'm more increasingly anxious about whether people see the person that I present and feel like I'm their kind of person, the person who belongs in their friend group or category. And of course, this has a flip side. 
Um, as much as I'm worried about being excluded, I'm also in a constant state of deciding who to include in my own space, and by extension, who I exclude. And to complicate it more, the people that I include apparently also tells a story to everyone else about what kind of person I am. Who are the people that Kevin chooses to associate with? So the available space for each of us narrows and narrows. And have you noticed that every time it narrows, we draw a tighter line, always keeping ourselves, of course, in the smaller and smaller and smaller circle of our own idea of moral good. And as we draw that circle of acceptable people smaller, we push more and more people outside of it. Are you exhausted by this? I am. I'm so tired. And yet the Bible somehow calls us to unity in the midst of all of this mess. And not just a passive ideological unity, but an active unity. Hospitality, which is unity in action. Our text this morning says that this, hospitality, is part of our responsibility as followers of Jesus. Part of how we love not just our Christian friends, but strangers. And that's actually what the word hospitality means, by the way. It's the love of strangers. It's the opposite of the word xenophobia. It's like xenophilia, actually. It's the love of strangers rather than the fear of them. The author of this letter actually gives us this uh, motivation. He says, Some people, by showing hospitality, have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. And he's kind of winking at a story that maybe you're familiar with. For sure, the original hearers of this letter would have been familiar with it. It's the story of Abraham and three mysterious visitors. In Genesis 18, um, and you can read it at home today, later, if you'd like, we're told that Abraham was sitting at the doorway of his tent on his patio in the afternoon heat, and he saw three men walking by. Abraham gets up and he books it. Um, he sprints. Now, um, many of us avoid ever having these kind of stranger encounters because... We're never sitting at the front of our houses. Um, we've actually pretty much gotten rid of front patios, if you've noticed. But if we did see strangers pass by, some of you would run too. But probably in the opposite direction. Abraham wasn't running away from them. He was sprinting towards them. And you're like, why? Why would he do that? He was begging them to stay and sit with him for a little bit. He says to them, would you please honor me by letting me give you rest here? I'll give you a little bit of water to wash your feet and a little bit of bread to munch on. It's like, sure, they say. Do you have people in your life who, when guests come over, they're like a little chaotic? Like, there's <laughs> everywhere, running everywhere around. You know, don't point to them if they're sitting beside you. Uh, Abraham does this. He's rushing everywhere. Um, and if you read the story, it's a little bit hilarious. The amount of times it says, and Abraham rushed over here and ran over here and asked them to do this quickly. So he runs to Sarah, his wife, and asks her to bake some bread. Uh, and he's promised the visitors like a little bit of bread. So like, nah, maybe like make a little, little loaf of bread. Um, no, he asks her to quickly knead up 21 quarts of flour. <laughs> That's 70 cups. Um, then he runs to his field. He's like, well, a foot bath, maybe he keeps his foot bath in the field. I don't know. No, he runs and grabs a calf, sprints over to his servant, gets his servant to kill and prepare the calf. He's still running. Not only that, he prepares a, a cheese board and then runs out to bring the bread and the beef and the milk and the cheese to these three strangers. I, I once visited an elderly relative of mine in the Netherlands, uh, and I remember the table was just like heaped with so much food, and it was all carbs. 
And I, I remember being so full while she kept kind of like, kind of aggressively miming and shouting, Etta, drink, drink, which is like, eat, drink. And I was trying, but I was so full. I wonder if that's what these three visitors felt like when instead of crackers, they are met with five dozen loaves of bread and a couple hundred pounds of beef. Now, Abraham offered them this hospitality, and there's no indication that he had any idea who they were. What an expense. What a lot of work. What a risk inviting these strangers into your space. Can you imagine yourself doing this? Through the course of history, uh, of this story, actually, and history, uh, we find out that these people are divine messengers. We call them angels, which is just angel means messenger. And in fact, we have reason to believe that one of them was the Lord God himself. Now, as much as we love Abraham, this maybe wasn't crazy, unusual behavior. In the ancient Near East, hospitality was a really, really important social, cultural virtue. Remember, this is a time without inns, or at least not inns that you want to stay at. And whatever you believed, the culture was such that hospitality, a welcoming in of strangers, was really important. It actually was very important in the Greek culture, too, which meant that the people who were hearing this letter in our Bibles were pretty familiar with the idea of hospitality. Um, the Greeks kind of had a similar reason. Like, you might invite a divine guest. Kind of just like this mentality, well, maybe it's the queen in disguise. We should invite them in just in case, you know, just hedge our bets. Um, some of you are from cultures that are a bit like these cultures, highly social, engaging with a really high view of hospitality, which almost always means you have good food and lots of it. And I've been to your small group, and so thank you for giving me a plate of food. <laughs> uh, in our like, kind of more West Coast, North American society, we, we have some cultural norms, Hospitality, at least culturally, is a, l a little closer to good housekeeping um, about entertainment. And that's not a knock. Uh, that's just how we do things and what we value. Have you ever watched the show House Hunters on HGTV? Uh, I don't know why, but no matter what, everyone on their list always wants a space where they can entertain. <laughs> Whether or not they do entertain, they all apparently love to be able to entertain. They want a kitchen where they can entertain. Uh, we, we also tend to care a lot about aesthetic. And maybe I'm only speaking to my fellow millennials, but not only do we love to entertain, we love to entertain in an environment that would be good enough to photograph. Whether or not it goes on Instagram, it should be aesthetic enough that it could. And whether or not we like it, that's just the reality of the culture that many of us find ourselves within. And as we look back at Hebrews and the command to show hospitality, an argument can be made that what's being said here is that we should do our best to have a good reputation within our respective cultures. Elsewhere in the Bible, and even within this letter, God emphasizes the importance of maintaining a good standing within our culture. And we do this all the time. We operate within some non-biblical norms simply because of the culture around us. Not anti-biblical, not things against the Bible, just things that the Bible doesn't really tell us to do or not to do. That's why you're all wearing clothes, and why you're wearing shoes, and why we're sitting on chairs, and why our music uh, has some resemblance to popular styles of 20th and 21st century music. It's why we shake hands instead of kiss. Uh, it's because we're part of human society, and, and as much as we're able, we do want to have a good reputation with, as God's people in society. 
I think that's important. But I also don't think that means that we ought to limit our hospitality by just restricting it to our own cultural norms. Even though the Christian love of strangers wasn't always unique to Christians, Christians have a very unique reason of why we are hospitable. And I think that why is critical. You can't make it very far into the Bible without being bombarded with the theme of hospitality, if you're paying attention. Almost every one of the key figures in Genesis has a moment where they're tested on their hospitality. And when God teaches his people what it looks like to be like him, hospitality, the care for strangers, is one of the key things he focuses on. All through those law passages in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, he's all about this. An example is Leviticus 19, 34, where the Lord says, The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself. And he gives the reason that he gives everywhere when he gives this command. Here's the reason. For you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, friends, this is the turning point where if we're not careful, we'll completely miss the point. For me, every time we come to our church's value of serve, I feel kind of conflicted because I want to be the kind of person who does, who accomplishes, who gets challenged and applies it. But at the same time, I'm tired. I feel like I'm already doing so much. And I suspect that I'm not the only one. I think many of us are here because we're ready to read Hebrews 13 and we're ready to be challenged to be people of hospitality, but we're also secretly dreading the guilt that might come by not being able to do it. We're already thinking about our chaotic schedules, the things we've prioritized, maybe even the busyness we have from the things that we're already doing to serve the church in our city. Our lives are at such an accelerated pace. Friends, if you left here today feeling more burdened than when you arrived, we failed to show you the good news of Jesus. For you were a stranger in the land of Egypt. The story of the Bible is that we are a people who were hopeless and wandering, without a home, who have been adopted as children of the living God. Why welcome the stranger? Because we were strangers until God welcomed us. Okay, but this is the tricky bit. And you can't miss it. We're not hospitable because we owe it to God to be hospitable. We don't. We are hospitable because it's all that we should know. If we really, really understand the good news, nothing else but the good news will make any sense to us at all. Our whole lives should be saturated, characterized by the good news of Jesus. So sisters and brothers, with the Apostle Paul... I want to remind you of the gospel, the good news which was preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this good news you are saved if you hold firmly to the word preached, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Paul says to the Corinthians that he resolved to know nothing else except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In his letter to Timothy, he declares, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them. Modern theory might suggest that it's really unhealthy to view yourself as the worst of all sinners. And it might be, if it were not for the best of all saviors. <laughs> He'll decide whether this is your first day or your 50th year in these seats, the good news, just the gospel, 
is for sinners. And that's why you and why I need it every day. So in this place of safety, I hope, can I invite you to do something? Um, Would you close your eyes? And if you're comfortable, uh, maybe hold your hands in front of you, turn upward, and we're going to do the scariest thing. If you're willing and comfortable, I'd, I'd like to ask you to think about the thing that you did that you're most terrified about people knowing. The thing that you did that you're ashamed of. The thing that you did that you've never told another soul that you wish you could change. The hurt that you caused that you can't undo. Now, I'm not going to ask you to hold this in your mind very long. I don't, I don't know what you're holding, but I'm not here to tell you that what you did was okay. I think the reason that you're holding it here is because you know that it's not. You know that you have been ungodly. But you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, for you. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, (laughs) though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you were in the midst of the very thing you hate most, Jesus looked at you and said, I'll die for you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Loved ones, if you look at what you're holding and decide You'd much rather follow Jesus than stay there. Tell him. He says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. What you are holding wasn't enough to stop Jesus from dying for you. And if you'll allow yourself to trust him, that he loves you, that he will heal you, he will. Pastor Ray Ortland reminds us that when God washes you clean of all your sins in the blood of Christ, you can allow yourself to actually feel forgiven. Feeling new is the right response to the cross. Freedom is what God wants for you. The cross was the price that he was willing to pay. You can accept his grace with a clear conscience. This is good news. This is the good news of history. You're welcome to open your eyes. Friends, savor this moment. This may be the hundredth time you've been reminded of this good news or the first. Savor this. Because when Jesus sets a table, this is the centerpiece. Not a tasteful succulent or a vintage candle holder. It's his presence. That is the centerpiece of the table of Jesus. And the meal The food that gives us energy and the wine that makes our hearts glad, it's his very self, broken and sacrificed for you. The love of Christ on the cross is what makes the very first communion meal with Jesus' disciples meaningful. This is Jesus' practice of hospitality, which links the now and the forever all in one moment. That's why, like we did last week, we recreate that meal regularly 2,000 years later. This was, we call it Jesus' Last Supper. I like the term Lord's Table. Um, 
It certainly was not his last supper. It wasn't his first either. Someone once said that in the Bible, Jesus was either at a meal, on his way to a meal, or coming from a meal. And it doesn't stop. Actually, if we look forward, the future of eternity with God is portrayed in Revelation as what? As the wedding supper of the Lamb. Every one of these meals throughout Jesus' life, where Jesus is present, do you know what the centerpiece is? It's Jesus' presence. It's himself given for the people around that table. And his sacrificial love for them is always the centerpiece. Now, like Abraham, Jesus did spend time on the details of a well-put-together meal, of a welcoming event. He made plans and reservations for the Last Supper. He was the one who turned water into wine for a wedding. He cooked fish for his disciples after he rose from the dead, which is I don't know. That's just such a cozy story for me. Um, he instituted a regular meal as a way for his followers to worship him and be formed. But the central piece of the hospitality is the God who provides his loving presence and welcomes all to the table. And this is supposed to be like a natural character thing that developed in us. The more time we spend with Jesus, this should just be an outflowing. When the Bible talks about assessing who should like lead a group of Christians. There's like a list of things in the Bible that are character traits of elders and teachers and pastors to say, these are some things that you can look at externally to see if Jesus is changing them. And one of them is hospitality. Um, and I think that's one that we kind of shoved to the side. Uh, many over the years have been removed from leadership for sexual misconduct, financial crimes, misuse of substances. But to date, and maybe I'm just not in the right news cycles, and it's probably better that way, but I've never heard of someone removed for not being hospitable. And to be perfectly honest, in 10 years that I've been in ministry, I've been vetted for a lot of things. I don't think I've ever been asked about my hospitality. And I welcome you to examine me. Now, now you know. Um, but I want to be like Jesus, so do. If I'm not hospitable, tell me about it, and actually tell me that I'm sinning that's, you know, what the Bible says. So, uh, where am I? So, yes. Uh, I think we can often think about hospitality um, not in those lens of character traits. as something that we do rather than the outcome, the natural outflowing of being welcomed by Christ. So this morning, the message is simple and it's ancient. Love your neighbor as Christ has loved you. I remember hearing someone say that sometimes we spend so much time asking, who is my neighbor, that we actually forget to love our actual neighbors. Like, you have neighbors. So it's not like, <laughs> it's great to go like, well, is so-and-so my neighbor? Are they my but also, you have neighbors. Um, you share a property line with people, or a hallway, maybe even an actual wall, and you can hear them every day. Um, there's like a, a helpful exercise where you just draw like a little grid and put your house in the center and then try and like fill in the spaces all around your house, the walls that you share, the ceilings that you share, the property lines that you share. And then the exercise is fill that in with as much as you know about those people around you and the experiences that you've shared with them. They've done a study on this and most of us can't even name the first names of those people. So this morning, I'd love to challenge us, but I don't want to give you a task list or a burden list. 
because I hope that we can look at Jesus, aim to become more like him, and then look at as our hospitality as an indicator of whether we really believe the good news. Because I believe that if we're struggling to be hospitable, the answer is not be more hospitable, but spend more time reclining with Jesus at his table. So, what do you mean, Kevin? This is kind of abstract. I'll give you a couple thoughts. You'll struggle to be hospitable if you're worried about your social status. If you're worried about what the people around you will think when they see that person at your dinner table, your list of guests immediately shrinks. If you're worried about your, what your invitation implies to the person that you're inviting, well, if I invite them, they're going to think that I approve of this or like, don't have a problem with this. or The list is endless. Your list, again, is going to shrink. The thing about Jesus' ministry is that it would be wildly controversial. Um, if Jesus showed up today, he would hang out with all the people you'd be really embarrassed that he was hanging out with. You probably wouldn't want to follow Jesus because... Like, them? No, no, no. Like, I'm, yeah, it's, like, cool that you're hanging out with, like, tax collectors because we don't really have a problem with them right now. But them? <sighs> Jesus would be canceled by everyone today on both sides, no matter whatever sides there are. There's, he would be canceled by everybody. And Jesus dined with all people, with the people who thought they were the purest of the pure and the people who were the worst of the worst. And every single one of those people was tremendously opposed to everything Jesus stood for. And still, Jesus offers his very self. Remember, he had a meal with a person who he knew would betray him. Now, if your social status is your concern, it's going to get in the way of your hospitality. So what's the answer? You need to spend more time at Jesus' table. Because he already looks you in the eyes, who were a stranger from him as well, and he sees you and says, you are beloved. It doesn't matter what the other people think. Because your identity is secure. You're already being at his table where he looks at you and says, I see you. I love you. You're going to struggle with hospitality if you love your stuff. If you're scared of spending money on people who might not deserve it, um, by the way, they won't deserve it, but neither do you, you can, you can love people or you can love your stuff. Now, I mean this in two ways. You can love your stuff protectively or you can love your stuff aspirationally. And both will get in the way of you being hospitable. What I mean is this. You might have already arrived. You might have your home exactly how you like it. The carpet is white. The chairs are designer. The glasses are expensive. Most dramatically, the house is clean and the dishes are done. And you think to yourself, let's not have people with kids over. Or the person with body odor. Like, that might stink up the couch. Or that really clumsy woman who's always breaking or spilling things. If you think that, you've lost the plot. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, um, who has a phenomenal story, I encourage you to read it, that her life was transformed by people being hospitable to her. She says that uh, if you have that perspective of protecting your stuff, she says you, you might have like-minded people who come and bow before your idols, but you won't ever practice hospitality. If the white carpet is an idol, or the new paint, or the couch, or your private liquor collection, or your semi-pornographic videos, you're so far from Jesus that you can't even do the most basic Christian practice to open your home in real time. So what's the answer? Spend time with Jesus. 
Tell him that you loved your carpet and you're scared that you love it more than you love him. He'll help you. Like, he, he will. And the closer you get to him, the more you'll remember how many times you've spilled wine all over his carpet and how precious it is that he keeps mopping it up and offering himself to you again. Well, say you don't have stuff, but you still love stuff. That will stop you from being hospitable. This is what I mean by aspirational stuff loving. Your place isn't what you like. You just need a little bit more before you invite people in. My chairs are still mismatched. I don't have a dining room table. I can't afford nice food or good wine or a tasteful succulent for the centerpiece. Friends, the centerpiece is the gift of Jesus' presence. And you, if you follow him, have his presence within you. If you want to love people, but you're still waiting for the white picket fence before you do, you got to get over it. Who cares if you have a kitchen that lets you entertain? Jesus was homeless. <laughs> He's the most hospitable person that I was ever there. Talk about not having matching dishes. Every time Jesus offered hospitality, it was at someone else's place. <laughs> so take whatever little that you have, and more importantly, take whoever Christ has made you to be and offer that. Even if that means inviting yourself over. That's just as much hospitality as prepping a five-course meal. It might actually be more hospitable. Just two verses further in Hebrews, we're told to keep ourselves free from the love of money, to be content with what we have. Why? Because we can't love our neighbor and money, and we're reminded that God has told us, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. All that we have is already a gift from God for the love of our neighbor. Our homes are not our castles. Indeed, they are not even ours. You're going to struggle with hospitality if you're worried about sin polluting your family. In her book, in this book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Rosaria Butterfield opens with a challenging story. The neighbor of theirs, a neighbor of theirs had moved away and a new one had moved in. And this guy was weird, um, reclusive, kind of mean, like he ripped the doorbell off his door so they couldn't say hello to him. Um, they, but she's like, the gospel told us to love our neighbor. So they prayed for him. They built a bond over helping him search for his lost dog. And they felt like maybe they were making inroads with this guy. His name was Hank. The other neighbors were a little bit bothered by this. Uh, but she didn't care about her reputation because she's at Jesus' table. So she opens her book with a description of one morning where her whole neighborhood or street went into chaos because swarms of DEA agents had surrounded Hank's home. He was being arrested for a meth lab in his basement. Um, Rosaria describes her options, and I'm just going to read you a line from this book. She says, what does the conservative, Bible-believing family who lives across the street do in a crisis of this magnitude? How ought we to think about this? How ought we to live? We could barrack ourselves in the house, remind ourselves and our children that evil company perverts, and like the good Pharisees that we are, always poised to become, thank God that we're not like evil meth addicts. We could surround our home in our own version of yellow crime scene tape, giving the message that we are better than this that we make good choices, that we would never fall into this mess. We could surround ourselves with fear. What if the meth lab explodes and takes our daughter's bedroom out, which was the closest room to the lab? 
we could berate ourselves with criticism. How could we have allowed this meth addict into our hearts and our home? But that, of course, is not what Jesus calls us to do. As neighbors filed into our front yard, which had become front row seats for an unfolding drama of epic magnitude, I scrambled eggs, put on a big pot of coffee, set out Bibles, and invited them in. Who else but Bible-believing Christians can make redemptive sense of tragedy? Who else can see hope in the promises of God when the real lived circumstances look dire? Who else knows that the sin that will undo me is my own, not my neighbor's, no matter how big my neighbor's sin may appear? And where else but a Christian home should neighbors go in times of unprecedented crisis? Where else is it safe to be vulnerable, scared, lost, hopeless? Friends, unless we get the good news that we have been welcomed to the table, we'll miss it. We'll cloister ourselves in and forget that we, too, were strangers from God. This is a vision. Friends, our home should be an oasis of refreshment and non-anxiousness in a world that is anxious about everything. Because that is who Christ is to us. He is our rock of help, our shelter from the storm, the calmer of our seas. Can we not then offer that to the world around us? Hospitality is simply being like Jesus, giving yourself for another, laying down your life as Christ loved the church, this is good news, and I don't want you to miss out on it. I don't want you to miss the beauty of seeing other people meet the Spirit of God who lives in you. There's nothing more gripping than realizing that you resemble Jesus. It's all about this. It's all about welcoming others in the name, in the same way that Christ has welcomed you. And this should be the frame, the lens that we see everything through. Can I ask you? Would you let him take the burden of everything that you feel you have to do and clear it away? You can make space, time, and place because you've, you are already seated at a table that doesn't belong to you. You don't need to earn anything. Whatever culture and ourselves, our own, we're part of culture, whatever we're telling ourselves we need to do to be human, Jesus says, nah, love your neighbor as I have loved you. At this table, our cup overflows. Um, it's a church, a pastor, Ray Ortland, uh, in the United States, they welcome the people to their church every single week with this little phrase. It says, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior, this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, the friend of sinners. Welcome. You know, in the, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells his disciples, um, they, his disciples tell Jesus after they've given up everything to follow him, he says, truly I tell you, no one who has left their home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive as many times as much in this age 
and in the age to come. In our very midst, there are people who have made huge sacrifices to follow Jesus. Some have been rejected by their families. Some have decided to be single at the cost of the cultural ideal of being with someone. Some have given up homes for the sake of being generous or to be close to their community. And Jesus promises that each of these people will receive many times more than that, not only in the life to come, but in this one. Do you know what his plan is for doing that? It's you, it's me, the church. The question we have to ask ourselves at Hillside is this. For those who have given up things for Jesus, would they say that being part of our church family is a hundred times better than anything they gave up? They should be able to. We, the people of God, is, are God's method to put the orphans in homes, the lonely in families. So here at the end, um, what does making space like this look like? I have some practical recommendations that look like Jesus, of things we can do. Pay attention. Uh, I used to work at a produce store. It was my first job when I was 14, and my boss loved customer service um, to make them feel welcomed and loved. And he would come up to me to train me this and like cover the sides of my eyes. This is like, maybe a little bit weird, but <laughs> cover my eyes and ask me, like, so who's, who's on the right there and who's on the left? And, did you see that piece of garbage that's like kind of behind you in the corner? His point was, he always called it 360-degree vision. Uh, his point was that I wasn't supposed to be myopic. I wasn't supposed to have my whole attention just on the potatoes that I was stocking. If we're hospitable, we need to be like Jesus, paying attention to people around us and to their experiences, and to how they're experiencing the world around them. My mom and dad are excellent at this. Uh, I love seeing people get hosted by my parents. They're not pretentious. They don't have expensive dishes or extravagant wine or pour-over coffee, but they offer themselves by entering into the experience of others. They're empathetic. They know what people need. So when you come to my mom and dad's place, you don't notice what happens. Just all of a sudden, you're home. They take care of all the things you might be worried about in order to make you feel safe. Somehow, they hung up your coat, got you something to drink, put you in a comfortable chair, and were engaging you in good conversation. The best compliment I heard about my mom was someone who met her and said, I just felt like from the moment I met her, I could just cry and things would be okay. Sometimes being hospitable, loving our neighbors and strangers means getting rid of the easier bar easy barriers, like being awkward and uncomfortable to make space to talk through the big barriers. Finally, I think Sam Albury really frames well the goal of the good news of hospitality. It's about an attitude of there you are, instead of, here I am. If we approach people in our home with an agenda, whether that agenda is to show off our home, to build up our reputation, or even to sneakily slip in an altar call to lead them to Jesus, we're missing the point. Eugene Peterson blew my mind when he described his pastoral care practice. He was inspired by the story of the resurrection when the angels told the disciples, look, he is risen. He is going before you. There you will see him just as he told you. So Pastor Eugene would recite this to himself about the people he was about to meet. Because every stranger that you're going to love is already loved by Jesus. Jesus is already up to something in their lives. You don't need an agenda. You and I need to listen. To create a space of such good news saturated refuge that we have the time and the environment to listen to what Jesus is up to in their lives.
to honor them with the non-anxiousness of our very selves because Jesus gave himself to us. Friends, he is risen. He is going before you. And there, in the lives of the people who you have the privilege of having in your home, you will see him, just as he said. Um, Let me pray for you. Lord God, thank you um, for your goodness. Lord, that you have hosted us around the presence of your very self. You have given us life and life to the full. We love you, Lord, and we pray that the Tri-Cities would look something different and our neighborhoods would look something different because we live there and because your spirit lives there with us. Lord, would you do this? Pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Friends, Christ died for you. He's with you. He's going before you. Um, as you figure out what this looks like with him this week, um, may you enjoy the rest of his table. Uh, go in his peace.